usually towards the end of the year, s these messages get very um, specific, as in they're being chosen for a specific reason. And so I'm hoping it's a setup towards uh, what we can announce on uh, New Year's as our path to follow for six months or a year. So today, um, we're going to talk about zeal. I have spoken about this two years ago, but felt that it needed to be pulled up again. And so glory anchors and is automated through zeal. Glory is anchored. Glory is anchored and automated, as in activated or automated by zeal. When someone is zealous, the glory of God is able to anchor or find traction. The glory of God is such a precious holy thing that when Israel, without being given permission, opened the ark, they died. We made glory, the glory of God an external manifestation that tickles our flesh. And in the process of doing that, what has happened is the glory of God has lost its holiness. The moment glory loses holiness, something is wrong. Because part of God's glory is His holiness, His weight, splendor, magnificence, goodness, holiness, majesty, laughter, power, all rolled into one. We keep repeating that. And so you remove holiness from glory and it is a mutation. It is not God. And so zeal has this quality of being able to um, provide great traction for glory to hold. And it also automates or activates it as in the glory of God is so God, so full of power and laughter and presence and weight and magnificence that a person who is not zealous cannot do anything except to be overcome by it. Are they? Enemies can be overcome by it. Friends can be overcome by it. But to take the glory of God and run, that's a different thing. That requires zeal. We've been talking about disruptive glory as in the glory of God is disruptive in that it devastates the demonic landscape or the satanic landscape and it irrigates or makes fertile everything that is geared towards or inclined towards God. And so zeal is such an important part of this. And so we'll try to define zeal so we understand uh, it and then remember glory is anchored in or finds traction in, and is activated or carried uh, by those that are zealous or those that have a passion, those that are those that have zeal. In fact, in Matthew eleven fifteen, uh, it says that um, the kingdom is advancing, and only those that are zealous or those that are violent can uh, be involved in the advancement of the kingdom. The kingdom of God can withstand violence, and the violent take it by force. Another word for violence is. Uh, a zealous passion it advances with and those that are zealous and passionate uh, and aggressive with it um, help advance the kingdom that uh, I guess what we need to imagine is this if you were to separate it from God and just look at it as sheer power or force like some kind of a some kind of an explosive big bang cosmic kind of power 
It is impossible to contain, hold, carry it if I don't have some kind of caliber to meet it and then take it. It's like that scene where there's this meteor hurling across the universe and Superman goes and meets it. And then Superman grabs the meteor and instead of it coming towards the earth, he begins to push it. And you can see sparks flying, but this guy has enough to keep pushing it away into the Andromeda galaxy. And so we get saved. It's literally like that. God is looking for someone who has a kind of passion to meet his passion and to be able to carry it. One person usually cannot do it and they only used to do that in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God is looking for a people who can carry it. The ark was never carried by one person. The ark was carried by a group of four who would then take turns because it was never the same four. There was a reason it had four poles, two poles attached to it with four carriers. It was meant to be carried together. And so when God finds the, uh, a church that has the kind of zeal required, and not just external manifest, manifestations of zeal where a little bit of shouting, a little bit of hopping, um, that Phoebe can do for us. I'm talking about something more than that. Her zeal is not just jumping up and down, eh? That girl has zeal inside and outside. So how do we define zeal? Zeal is uh, different words to explain. It's spirit-stirred boldness. Zeal is spirit-stirred boldness. As in it's a boldness that comes with, the because of the Spirit of God being allowed to break through uh, in, uh, breakthrough in my life where I take on a fearless confidence, where I take on a fearless confidence. And so when I say spirit stirred, it means it's in areas where the spirit wants to give to me the kind of power that he would give Samson, where Samson would pick up the jawbone of an ass and make it a weapon of mass destruction. It's that kind of thing. Where the Spirit of God initiates it, the Spirit of God sustains it, the Spirit of God finishes it. And so this is not bravado, this is not uh, f re recklessness in, uh, that ends in um, foolishness. It is stirred up by the Spirit, it's sustained by the Spirit, it's finished by the Spirit. But when the Spirit begins to stir you up, one of the good things about Samson was every time the Spirit stirred him up, he would actually rise up. He would rise up. You see the same with Saul. You see the same with David. Suddenly the Spirit of God would come upon them and they would be stirred up. They used to experience it in little bits because they were, not, uh, they were in the Old Testament. So the Spirit of God would only descend on prophets, priests and kings for a certain purpose to be accomplished. But because the Spirit of God now dwells in me, if I could become aware of the stirring of the Spirit within me, uh, that is one of the things I really enjoy doing during worship, and particularly when I don't have a song list, I just thrill at the fact that we can be stirred up by the Spirit and go in a direction. So then all you need is a first song. Thereafter, it can go any which way, because you're following the blowing of the wind. Some days I wish Bob Dylan had stayed a Christian, but he's been a Jew, he's been a Christian, he's been an atheist, but he writes some amazing songs. That's on the side. That was not important. It was just personal musings that came out loud. <laughs> Fearless confidence despite 
Because if I needed to explain that, I'd have started who Bob and Dylan is. They are one person, Brandon, one person. Yeah. Fearless confidence. This, it's a kind of fearless confidence that uh, in the face of current ideology or hostile ideologies, hostile ideologies, ideologies, culture, systems, nations, rulers, imaginary lions and real lions, gods of this age, threats, persecution. In the face of all this, the Holy Spirit, because he wants to advance the cause of God, when I say hostile, I mean hostile to Christ, hostile to Christ's ways, hostile to the gospel, hostile to um, salvation only through Christ, hostile to the truth. We talked about truth on uh, the Christmas Eve service. If you haven't listened to it, listen to it. It's the, 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 the crux of the message is very simple. For this purpose I was born, to bear witness to the truth. John 17, verse 37 and 38. That is the reason Jesus was born. It was a Christmas message. But it's a very strange passage to pick on because it was at the end of his days at the trial. For this reason I was born. For this purpose I was born, to bear witness to the truth. And so um, the Spirit of God stirs up boldness in churches, in Christians. In the book of Acts, you would see it again and again where there's this fearless confidence despite hostile ideologies, cultures, systems, nations, rulers, imaginary and real lions. Some lions are in our heads. Eh? Proverbs 26 verse 3 or thereabouts says that uh, the, the lazy guy sits in his home and does not venture out because he thinks there's a lion on the, in the streets. Imaginary lions, real lions, God of this age, threats, persecution. Uh, uh, please understand, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask is not persecution. It's just a piece of cloth. Yeah, uh, so um, that is because when I went to the U.S., I was surprised at um, how wearing a mask was seen as persecution, and I thought to myself, "Then visit Nandigama." Yeah. So the, all I'm saying is. Not all I'm saying. One of the things I'm saying is, guys, let us waste, let us spend zeal on things that matter. Let us not waste the currency of zeal. And the kingdom needs boldness. The kingdom needs boldness. What happens over a period of time if a church or if a pastor or if a people lack boldness is they begin to learn how to naturally adjust, adjust to the world. You begin to learn how to naturally adjust to the world. That is what is frightening. That over a period of time, if I am not, um, uh, if I'm not, um, if I'm, if I don't have a tendency towards boldness, over a period of time, I begin to naturally adjust to the world. It's like a thermostat that adjusts to the world, and then boldness becomes very difficult. And the way we adjust to the world is by saying, but the law says this, but uh, people would think like this. There are different ways we can do it, but that's how we normally do it. 
So we've got to be careful of that. It's like that frog that doesn't know the water is boiling. Uh, you, you just adjust to the world around you and you don't realize how much it is seeping in and how you're marinating in it and you don't realize. Just take that as a warning. I'm, I'm speaking to myself really that it is so easy to think I will be bold when required and I will have the faith for whatever I, is required when I get there. And so boldness is not a way of life. The thing with most things that are the nature of Jesus is that they are supposed to become my nature, not something I pull out in a time of crisis or need. And I would suggest to you that uh, without zeal or boldness, revivals are almost impossible. Without zeal or boldness, revivals are impossible. Because boldness is the essence of revival. It is, you're trying to revive something that is decaying and dead. And it goes against the grain of what everyone is saying. And now you've got to go and revive it and that requires boldness. As much as we uh, think of Jonah as a um, reluctant prophet, please understand that to go to Nineveh and to preach was not easy. Nineveh was one of the most wicked cities in the world has always been. Very rarely has it been spoken of well. The only one who speaks of Nineveh well is God. History records it as an evil city. And yet here is a man who tried to run away for good reason. He was bold, man. He revived an entire nation. Paul was bold. Goes to Athens, doesn't have much, too many results. Goes to Rome. Boldness is... As, uh, is the essence of revival. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1 or 2, God says that, um, uh, Deuteronomy 9, verse 1 and 2, uh, God says that, listen, the cities you are going into are fortified, and you will meet fierce resistance there, and you will meet powerful giants there. Deuteronomy 9, verse 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 9, verse 1 and 2. If I'm speaking fast, Betty, it's because of the extra scoops. I noticed you're not able to write as fast. Deuteronomy 9, verse 1 and 2. And so um, God talks about taking fortified cities. And he said, in these cities, you will meet fierce resistance and powerful giants. So in a sense, what he's saying is, hey, you guys keep talking about revival. I'll take you there. It won't be just teaching, teaching, teaching. I'll let you know when I want you to stop teaching on it and jump into the fray. And when I do, you need to know that there'll be fierce resistance and powerful giants. One of the ways we get ready for it is to shield or reinforce your heart with the breastplate of righteousness. Shield and reinforce your heart. One of the ways, this is, you know, sometimes... I myself ask this question of God, Father, we keep teaching, upon, uh, teaching on revival. When are we going to actually do something about it? And that is when you realize that sh some of these things, if you don't get right, your revival will be 20 people that you'll be thrilled about, and God will have to pack up bags and move on to someone else to find them. Because one of the essentials of zeal or passion or revival, uh, for revival is to wear the breastplate of righteousness to wear the breastplate of righteousness. I mean, you say it that way, most of us, including me, won't even know what that means. 
If I asked you to, we'll all come up with different clips, but we really don't know what we, you mean. We won't even know where the verses are that talk about the breastplate of righteousness other than Ephesians 6. So what is this about? Go to Isaiah 59, verse 17. Isaiah 59, verse 17. The Lord looked, I mean, it, it, is the, it is in a sense the essence of a revival being spoken here by the Lord. Start at verse uh, 15 and a half, or uh, 15. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Beautifully. That is the summation of the distilled version of revival. All those parts. We'll explore that later, but... Shield and reinforce your heart with the breastplate of righteousness. For it says in Proverbs 28.1 that only the righteous can be bold as a lion. Uh, Proverbs 28.1 Only the righteous can be bold can be bold as a lion. And righteousness, as we have defined in the past, is being in right relationship with God, being in right relationship with yourself, being in right relationship with people around you, being in right relationship with the environment that God has placed you in. That's a very simple definition of righteousness. And righteousness and justice come from the same word, which then takes us to Isaiah 58, which is such a chapter on justice. We've talked about that. All these things have to work together. Sometimes so hard to hold them together. But shield and reinforce your heart with the breastplate of righteousness. Isaiah 59, 17, uh, 15 to 17. Let me read it again. Isaiah 59. Let, let's try it from the message and see how it reads there. Isaiah 59, verse 17 to 19. Sorry, verse uh, 14 onwards. Justice is beaten back. Righteousness is banished to the sidelines. Truth staggers down the street. Honesty is nowhere to be found. Good is missing in action. Anyone renouncing evil is beaten and robbed. God looked and saw evil looming on the horizon. So much evil and no sign of justice. He couldn't believe what he saw. Not a soul around to correct this awful situation. So he did it himself, took on the work of salvation, fueled by his own righteousness. 
He dressed in righteousness, put it on like a suit of armor, with salvation on his head like a helmet. He put on judgment like an overcoat and threw a cloak of passion across his shoulder. He'll make everyone pay for what they've done, fury for his foes, foes, just deserts. How do you pronounce desert there? Deserts for his enemies. Even the far off islands will get paid off in full. In the west, they'll fear the name of God. In the east, they'll fear the glory of God. For he'll arrive like a river in flood, whipped by a torrent of wind, of the wind of God. I'll arrive in Zion as redeemer to those in Jacob who leave their sins, God's decree. As for God, as for me, God says, this is my covenant with them. My spirit that I've placed upon you and the words that I've given you to speak, they're not going to leave your mouths, nor the mouths of your children, nor the mouths of your grandchildren. You will keep repeating these words and won't ever stop. Beautiful, eh? That is what we're aiming for, guys. Now you see how revival is so much more than getting someone saved. That's what we think revival is. People repent of their sins and come to church. Well, this is what it really looks like. And zeal is such an essential part of it. So what is the nature of zealousness? What does it look like? Um, one, it's being jealous for God's honor. It starts there. Jealous for God's honor. You see that there's a greater cause. And so you get jealous for God's honor. You see this in Numbers 25 verse 7, where a guy called Phinehas takes a javelin and uh, he's really jealous for God's honor because Yahweh has just turned up in the camp. You can see the tent of meeting glowing because the Shekinah has descended and then there's um, Zimri and Cosby, a man and a woman who are caressing while God is appearing in the midst of them. And uh, uh, so what happens is he takes a javelin and drives it through Zimri and Cosby because a plague had already broken out throughout the camp. And what God says about Phinehas is this man is jealous for my honor. He has a zeal for my honor. Jealousy for honor will show in the way I behave. Jealousy for honor. This is where we got to be careful that if we are talking about God's honor, there's a way to behave too. Um, What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that there are times when God can be father and you can run into your, his arms and grab him and um, sit with your feet up uh, and it's okay. There are other times he comes as majesty and you've got to instantly realize it. One of the things that young adults in particular have to figure out is when is God turning up and who is he turning up as? Because accordingly you have to change your mental and physical posture. For us ones who are older, what happened was we were always taught to maintain a physical posture of majesty. So we never got to understand him as father, friend. So that's why even today you can go into really good Pentecostal churches and everyone is always in the position of the honor of his majesty. And there's a place for that. But you never realize the other parts of it. But with the young adults in all churches, including this church. What happens with us is sometimes the posture of his father and friend doesn't shift. And so you don't behave mentally and physically with the posture of, oh, he's appearing as majesty. Every time I see that in you, 
I get so irritated. But you can, can't speak in your irritation. You have to speak after the irritation is over. Jealous for God's honor. Phineas was jealous for God's honor. One should begin to see a greater cause. One begins to see a greater cause when one is passionate. What do you mean by a greater cause? This is exactly what's happening in the foxholes of Israel when David is going up and down. Goliath is out there and he's walking around saying, um, isn't someone going to do something? And his brothers are getting really irritated. Who are you, you little runt? to walk around like this telling us soldiers what to do. And that's when David says, but isn't there a greater cause? Isn't there a cause? Can we just sit in our foxholes like this after the morning and evening sacrifice? Zeal immediately sees the cause of God and rises up to it. Any questions? This is what zeal looks like. This is why glory can be handled by ones who walk in this kind of zeal. Any questions on that? Second, zeal takes first watch. Zeal takes first watch. How do you know a soldier who is zealous, he usually will volunteer to take the first watch of the night. Can, can, I, can I take first watch? And everyone has marched and they're tired and they want to go up to sleep. Here's this guy saying, can I stay awake? Uh, let me take the first watch. This is the kind of zeal that you see in the 300 that Gideon led. This is the kind of zeal that you see in Joshua when he insists on staying by the tent of meeting because the Shekinah hasn't disappeared yet, um, but Moses has disappeared. This is the kind of zeal that you see when Habakkuk uh, in chapter 2 uh, climbs up the watchtower and says, I've got a complaint and I've got to climb up the watchtower and wait there to see how God is going to address my complaint. This is the kind of zeal that you see in Abraham as he cuts branches and takes his robes and starts driving away the carrion birds of prey because he's cut a sacrifice and he knows God is coming. This is the kind of zeal you do not see in Gethsemane when the disciples fell off to sleep. So zeal takes first watch. Zeal works with courage. Zeal works with courage, as in the power of the Holy Spirit envelopes your courage. The Spirit clothes, clothes your courage. So sometimes if you want zeal, first ask for courage. Sometimes if you want zeal, first ask for courage. You see this in Acts chapter 4, 28, where in the face of threats, the disciples call out to God and say, uh, Oh God, there are threats, but please could you give us the courage and the boldness to now stand up against these threats? I don't have courage. I used to, I remember my sister got into trouble because there was a girl who was troubling her. And so I went up and hit the girl and then ran for my life. Because I was scared, not of the girl, but she had older brothers. <laughs> and so I hit the girl. I said, Reva, come. And running away with uh, Reva. And then another time, I remember this dog called Sheru or Shera. And uh, 
we were playing and the ball went into the um, uh, compound of the neighbor and Sheru's there. But the ball was a very expensive ball. So I sent my sister to pick the ball. And I'm standing on this side of the fence encouraging her, don't worry, it'll be okay. The dog won't do anything. Just go, just go get the ball. And she escaped by this much, eh? And, and so I've, I've noticed, if given my past, that I'm not, I don't have too much courage, yeah. Um, yeah. And then eventually when those, then when that girl's brothers did catch up in the eye, ran like the wind, man. And I ran through people's houses. Like, I needed to get to my home. I knew all the shortcuts. And I'm running through someone's living room and they're looking as a little kid goes scurrying through. Because in India, you can go through people's houses to get wherever you want to. It's like Matt Damon on top of the roofs, only this is through houses. And so all I'm trying to say is, I know that I don't have courage. And so when I find myself in situations that I begin to feel fear, instead of asking for boldness, I first ask God, Father, a little bit of courage. So that you can cloak that courage with zeal. A part of a Christian's courage is this. That I will speak. No, it, it is uh, Revelation 12 basically. That I will not love my life enough. That is where my courage comes from. If I can get there, it's Revelations 13 or 12. Revelations 12, I think. Let's just check. <coughs> they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. Wherever it is, it's in Revelations 11, 12, or 13. It's in one of those. And so that is the only place you can begin. That, Father, uh, I know you watch over me. I know you protect me. I know you've given me promises. But if I can... 12, pardon? 12. Revelations twelve eleven. But if I can choose not to, try, not to love my life enough to preserve it, I will have the courage I need for this situation. That is where the Christian must start and end. If I can... If I can choose not to love my life enough to preserve it. Very difficult, guys. But uh, we, don't, we don't define courage by the terms of the world. We define courage by this, this simple thing. Okay, a few other quick uh, points on zeal. Zeal is wise or full of wisdom. Zeal is full of wisdom. Zeal is full of wisdom. As in, when uh, it comes from God, eh? Zeal is not foolish. Zeal is not... Uh, you know, when, when people are passionate, you hear two, two um, uh, things spoken to them. Some will say, you know, it's okay to be passionate, but you have to be wise, meaning don't overdo this. Or you'll say, or you'll have people saying, come on, just be foolish, just risk it. It's one or the other. But with zeal, it actually comes from the Holy Spirit, so it is full of wisdom. Jesus was zealous, but he knew when not to go to Jerusalem. He would say, my time has not yet come, and he would not go. 
Other times, he would go. Sometimes he would walk through a crowd that was waiting to push him down a ravine and he would walk through them. Other times he would not appear. It wasn't because he suddenly was fearful and suddenly was courageous. No, it was simply zeal is wise. And what do you mean when you say zeal is wise? All we mean is zeal is informed by the Holy Spirit. Zeal is informed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God tells you what to do in your passion. Zeal is informed by the Holy Spirit. Proverbs 19 verse 1 or 2 says, Zeal without knowledge is like a misguided dangerous thing. Zeal without knowledge is a misguided dangerous thing. Proverbs 19 verse 1 or 2, I'm not sure. Can someone check? Zeal without knowledge. Proverbs 19. It's not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor be hasty and miss the way. Zeal without knowledge is almost like a missile or a missile without a guidance system. You don't know where it'll fall. Zeal provokes signs and wonders. Zeal provokes signs and wonders. Zeal carries the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Zeal provokes signs and wonders. Passion is required for signs and wonders. One who is not passionate will not look at a man who is paralyzed. And uh, this was ages ago when I first met Roland Tan. And I saw a man in a wheelchair on Bridgeport. And uh, he was struggling to cross the road because he didn't know how to handle his wheelchair well. And so I decided to help him cross the road. And after Roland Tan was in town, I helped him cross the road. And then instead of letting him be, I started telling him about uh, the fact that Jesus can heal and asked him if he wanted to come for Roland Tan's meeting. And then I pushed him all the way home because I wanted to meet his son and daughter to tell them to come for the meeting. And it was super heavy pushing that guy, man. I didn't know. I thought wheelchairs were like, you can push them with a finger. No, it's dead weight. And this man was literally paralyzed waist downwards. Pushed him all the way. Why? I remember sweating through that summer day and pushing him for about a kilometer and a half to get to his house. Why? Because my passion was, this guy must be healed. I did not have the faith or the ability at that point to lay hands on him and pray for his healing. But I knew Roland Tan was in town and that Roland Tan had done this before, so I wanted him. They did come for the meeting. The guy did not recover, but that's another story. The point is, passion provokes signs and wonders. God loves seeing passion. When it comes to the provocation of signs and wonders, God remembers the day when a few people dug through the roof. It's not digging through the roof that is a big deal. It's destroying someone's home. Imagine that today. Imagine the insurance hassles. Imagine doing it during winter. Breaking through your roof. 
I don't even know if someone compensated the guy. And please remember, as much as Chosen is really interesting to watch, it is not the biblical narrative, eh? Just remember that. Sometimes we get confused. When I was growing up, um, the opening of the Red Sea was defined by Charlton Heston and Ben-Hur and the uh, um, um, Moses movie. Just be careful of that because uh, I love the way they write the story, but it ain't... Where's my pen? Can anyone see a white pen? Ah, yes. Zeal carries the gospel. Uh, one last sentence before we move on. Realms of faith, realms of faith and obedience are restricted to you, are restricted to you when boldness or zeal is under restraint. Realms of faith and obedience are restricted to you. As in, it's not that God is not invitational. It's not that God doesn't want you to participate. But it realizes that there's absolutely no point inviting Jacob into this realm of faith or into this realm of obedience because he's not passionate right now. Until he recovers his passion, giving him this, he won't even see it. And if he sees it, he won't even attempt it. So one of the things that we have to do and... Um, that I find myself doing every few months is realizing that I'm dulling in terms of passion. But some of us who've been Christians for long enough or who have activity happening in our life do not realize that passion is dulling and being replaced by activity or that you are now uh, operating on vapor uh, but you have done it for so long that you can still continue doing it without a problem. One of the ways you see passion dying is when you see that your um, standards of purity are lowering. Passion and purity are like two horses running together. They're yoked together. It is impossible to be passionate and lacking in purity. It is impossible to be pure and lacking in passion. Not possible. Passion and purity run together. And so one of the ways I notice a lack of passion in my life because my life is full of godly activity. That's what I get paid for. But one of the ways I notice a lack of passion in my life is when I notice my standards of purity lowering. As in what I allow into my life, what I'm willing to accommodate. And that is when I realize something is dulling. No one will notice it, Jacob, because you can run on vapor for another two months and no one, nobody would notice because you're gifted or you've done this long enough or whatever. This is how big names in Christianity fall. They are gifted, but they're now running, not on passion, but on activity. Passion and purity. Purity is an indicator. It's like the rapid antigen test. It'll tell you whether it's positive or negative. It's a great measure. Have you noticed how in the scriptures we read, he wraps himself with a cloak of vengeance or zeal, but he walks with the breastplate of righteousness. 
Righteousness and zeal always go together. Therefore God is not able, he restricts me from places of faith and obedience because he knows it won't be possible for me to carry it. So how do I prevent the loss of boldness? How do I prevent the loss of boldness? Um, one, we've got to realize that self-preservation is the enemy. Self-preservation is the greatest enemy of zeal. In believers. Of zeal in believers. Self-preservation is the greatest enemy of zeal in believers. And what is worse is, guys, when somebody, a young person or an old person, becomes zealous, the wise ones begin to tone down their zeal because they are scared of what may happen. It comes out of a good place. No, Simon, don't, don't, did you don't do that. I mean, it could be dangerous, you know. And so I'm doing that because either I care for him or I'm scared that if he goes and does it, someone may say, Jacob, you should have advised him better. But at the end of the day, self-preservation is the greatest enemy of believers because we start toning down things so that everything is middle of the road. Enemy of zeal and believers. Here's another one. Boldness or zeal loses momentum. Boldness or zeal loses momentum. When proclamation is subdued. When proclamation is subdued. Boldness or zeal loses momentum when proclamation is subdued. <laughs> Whatever you're passionate about, I will know by the way you speak, guys. Zeal always speaks. Zeal always speaks. You go sit with Don, it'll take hardly a few minutes to know that he's a supporter of Real Madrid. You go hang out with Pawan, you will hear about outdoorsy stuff. You'll know instantly. You go hang out with Manoj, You don't know what he's passionate about because there are so many things he talks about. <laughs> the point being that you always talk about your passion and therefore zeal loses momentum when proclamation is subdued. Zeal loses momentum when proclamation is subdued. Whatever you're zealous about, you must speak about. You must talk through your mask, but you must talk.
Just find out whether this is something that affects you, eh? Zeal is crippled by your need to appear sophisticated in the eyes of the world. In other words, zeal is crippled by the fear of man. Zeal is crippled by the fear of man. This thing is such a crippler, man. It, it's like a flesh-eating disease. It just it, it, the fear of man, the desire, need to be sophisticated, the need to not appear uh, uh, square, the need to uh, not lose acceptance is something that cripples zeal. This is why we ask people to come and st uh, spend some time at Acts 29. Just think of that. People are coming from different parts of the world. They spend some time here and they cannot go back without changing. And my hope is when they go back changed that they immediately create a small little test tube there where others can be cultured. Otherwise they'll have to keep coming back. So when Larissa came here and she was affected the way she does and now she goes back and she wants to come back for a month and she's bringing some friends with her. So that people can catch it. Passion and zeal are caught but it happens in the midst of a people that are that way. And always remember this. I've said this before. It is only when you hang out with a people of passion that your mediocrity is exposed. If you don't hang out, that's why guys, at Acts 29, if you are really not trying to hang out with people, you will not see your mediocrity. That's why I keep saying this again, and you hear me say this almost every second week, that if you are not, do not think that coming to a service is hanging out with the body. It's not. It's more than that. How do you define it? You cannot. It's not an activity. It is a condition of the heart that just makes it obvious. It's not coming to uh, attending a service. just want to end this bit by asking a question that <laughs> I've asked and I forget and I keep asking myself. What if you had no fear? What would you plan if you had no fear? What would you plan if you had no fear? And no fear would be exemplified with confidence and joy. That's what non-fear looks like. Non-fear has to be a mixture of confidence and joy. Both have to be present. You can't just be 
sorry, you can't just be confident, you can't just be confident, uh, joyful. You have to be confident and joyful where there is no fear. What if you had no fear? Do you know something? This was how Jesus lived. He had no fear. He was a man of sorrows who was very confident and joyful. This is how Jesus lived. Uh, every so often I ask myself, Jacob, if you had no fear, how would you be living right now? How would you be handling the situation if you had no fear? What would it look like, guys? What if you had no fear? What if you knew, and this is not my quote or anything, it's, I don't know who said it, but I read this some time ago. What if you knew that Jesus was in the next room interceding for you? If he was in the next room <laughs> praying for you in your present situation, what would, I mean, would you, if, if, would you be able to take on millions? Because he said he intercedes for you. And aren't his prayers answered? Is there a prayer that Jesus prayed that isn't answered? Especially if your will is surrendered to his prayer. The only time a prayer is not answered is when the will is not surrendered to Jesus' prayer. Because Jesus desired that everyone be saved. could say more about this, but let's move on and conclude. Because uh, with only 14 or 15 people in church, it feels like I can go on forever. So to stay in boldness, guys, um, intentionally remain, intentionally remain at the center of God's affection. Intentionally remain at the center of God's affection. Um, how do I uh, explain this with an example? When children want to be um, bold, when children want to feel safe, they intentionally come to their parent and stay right near the parent. And once you're right near the parent, you're bold. Any child does this. Doesn't matter whether the parent has disciplined them two minutes ago or got angry with them. Any child who wants to be bold immediately finds boldness within the circle of the parent's proximity. Suddenly the child is not afraid anymore. So one of the first things you need to do when you're afraid, when you lack zeal, when you're not passionate, is go back to the center of God's affection. Go back to the center of God's affection. Retrace your steps back to the center of God's affection. I just want to say something um, so that you remember it for the future and use it as a measure. If faith comes by hearing, Zeal and passion also come by hearing. If faith comes by hearing of the word, 
then zeal and passion also come with the hearing of the word because it is a word that begins to do something inside you. The Spirit of God takes the word and begins to stir up something within you. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, the stirring of the Spirit came because the word was heard and the Spirit began to work inside you. Therefore, you need to figure out how you hear and if you can hear long. Let me write that down. You need to figure out how you hear and if you can hear long. The how you hear as in, am I able to hear the word that God is bringing so that the Spirit of God can take it and stir up a passion in me? Because throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, either a voice came or a teaching was heard or God said something through a prophet and something began to stir up within the person. That's how it always happened in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So how you hear is basically um, Jeevan may hear 30-fold, Pawan may hear 60-fold, um, Joan may hear 90-fold. As in, you have the ability to open your spirit to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. How you hear is important. And we hear differently, guys. Some hear 30, some hear 60, some hear 90. And accordingly, you will produce fruit. You will produce tons of activity. Tons of activity does not mean fruit. Um, you and I can work the same number of hours over a seed in a pot, and yours will bear fruit. Mine will bear a pot. That's it. Mine will remain a pot. Activity does not mean fruit. So how you hear is important. Second, do you hear long? The, the problem, these are such precious truths. The problem is if you don't hear long, you can ignite passion, but you cannot fuel it. You start well, you do not finish. I must use this as a measure. Do I have the ability to hear long? Can I stay at it? Can I continuously hear? Both the Holy Spirit and the written word and the teaching word right now. Can you hear long or does your mind begin to get this bit, get ignited, get passionate and that's about the end of it. Yeah. Maturity is one of the measures of maturity is can you hear long? Any questions? Any pushback? Any conviction? If you're being convicted, stay silent. Is that way I'll feel happy? No, I'm just kidding. These are these are such critical truths, man. I'm so yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, great. How do you hear long? Uh, habit forming. Seeking the voice and word.
practicing in bits going back for fuel running in the steps carved by others one it's habit forming if you do not have the habit of hearing long bits as in whatever i now hear i have to put into practice otherwise i'm like a man who looks like into a mirror and forgets what he looks like one who looks into the word and does not practice it so that's the practicing bits habit forming is hearing long as in do i have the habit of sitting under the word reading the word do i have the habit of it if you don't cultivate the habit of it you may be gifted but that's about it it pains me to see giants in the making who end up stunted in their growth because they will not cultivate the habit of hearing long reading long studying long meditating long second one is seeking the voice in the word seek comes out of desperation or hunger seek doesn't come out of hide and seek hide and seek is a nice game seeking comes out of desperation either you're desperate because you've it's like a treasure or you're hungry it's like you will die one or the other third practicing it in bits otherwise i'll forget fourth going back for fuel father i've come to this place where i feel like elijah i got no more strength all right just wait there i'm sending an angel and he'll give you a bit of manna you'll get fueled again man jacob was almost exhausted hadn't uh, any idea that his son was alive the brothers come back and they say jacob your son is alive the guy won't believe it and then joseph sends the wagons and when joseph sends the wagons jacob saw the wagons and his heart was refreshed fifth size uh, token of a cloud in the sky these are the things that fuel you you keep going back to a sign a prophecy a word a teaching uh, but if i do not cultivate hearing jesus had to say it this way be careful of how you hear how you hear i cannot hear what i want i must hear what is spoken you don't know the agony in me right now you cannot hear what you want you must hear what is spoken otherwise guys here's the problem with being at acts 29 that if you don't cultivate this habit you will be called to account not by me because to whom much is given much is expected and if you're not able to then what you have will also be taken away jesus's words and the first person that will be measured like this and cannot afford to come short is me because it will start with me teachers be careful that what you teach is how you live because you will be held to a higher standard everything i say i'm setting myself up to be measured by it
I beg you, change in this. Going back for fuel, and then the other one is running in the steps carved. I mean, like uh, Tiju was saying, follow the car in front of you. They've beaten the snow down. Just follow that track. It becomes much easier. They were sent so that they could be forerunners who could create a pathway for you. So intentionally remain in the center of God's love. I'll finish in about six minutes. Um, draw on the Spirit, eh? Draw on the Spirit. Why draw? Uh, when I say draw on the Spirit, what I mean is, oh, no, no, I don't have to finish in six minutes. We started at 11. Um, yeah, sorry, my bad, guys. Don't want to rob you of precious time spent in the Word. Draw on the Spirit. Draw on the Spirit. Why? Because um, God has given us a spirit of love, of power, of a sound mind. And so draw on the Spirit as in, Spirit of God, you and I have become one. Can I now please have that oneness become more important than the fears of my soul? Second Timothy 1.7 God has not given us a spirit of fear, or timidity, but a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. Introverted doesn't mean timidity. You can be introverted. That's okay. Some of us aren't extroverted, and that, that, that is personality. But when personality takes on, when introversion takes on timidity, then now we are not operating. Second Timothy 1.7 um, Then we are not operating the way we need to. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love, power, and a sound mind. Why is it that I'm still afraid? It is because my soul begins to reign over my spirit. And so I must draw on the spirit, because his spirit and my spirit have become one. And in actual reality and truth, my spirit is not afraid. It is full of power, full of love, as in ability to love in all circumstances, and full of a sound mind, as in sufficient clarity. But my soul begins to get so afraid. Draw on the Spirit. Your mind is renewed by the Word of God and the drawing on the nature of the Spirit of God in you, which is your true nature. This is what I mean by, we've got to practice these things eh, in bits. One of the coolest ways to be bold, and this is perhaps uh, the most powerful way I found find is that you can be bold if you received your commission from God. If you received your commission from God. As in, if God says, I go before you and I will drive them out and I will be with you, even though you go against uh, fortified cities, and even though there are um, fierce giants and resistance, I go with you, I will drive them out. I'll be like a hornet's nest against them. Once you receive a commission from God, you can take on a strange boldness. This is why it's so critical that anything we do, individually or corporately, that if you know God said it, then, you can go about it boldly, even if it means you die in the process. Because you know who's backing you. 
This then allows you to go into any nation, into any situation, because the commission is from the ruler of heaven and earth. Then if you die, you're dying for a greater cause. It's okay. And the early church was marked by this. Eh? In um, uh, Acts chapter 1-8, you shall have power to witness in every part of the world. In Acts chapter 4-31, they prayed, saying, give us boldness, and the whole place shook. Ha Hebrews 13 verse 6, the Lord is my helper, why should I be afraid of man? Second uh, Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty both from the legal requirements of the law and there is freedom that the Holy Spirit brings. Romans 8.35, what can separate us from the love of God? Can this and that and the other, but in all things we are conquerors through Christ. The early church had these uh, ways of functioning. So, Here's how we're going to end. I'm going to read Ephesians 4, uh, sorry, Acts 4, verse 29, and then I'm going to ask maybe um, Jillian and Sue and Jeevan and May and Betty to come up and just pray for a boldness and a zeal and a passion to descend on us. And then we'll sing something if need be. Yeah? So let me read Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Guys, remember, eh? sometimes we need to wait on the Lord. Um, this, is, this is not connected to this, but uh, prayer should become conversations. Prayer should become conversations um, and continuous, unceasing conversations. So that's one side of prayer. The other side of prayer is waiting on the Lord as in being persistent in conversation, not in a harassing kind of way, but in a desperate kind of way. And there's a scripture in Psalm 27 verse 4 which says, wait on the Lord and uh, be patient and he will strengthen your heart. Sometimes the waiting on the Lord is not because he's reluctant to give, but because what he gives needs to trickle down. That is why. Waiting on the Lord is allowing what he's pouring to flow down from the head to the beard to the robes to the rest of you. And very often we wait on the Lord and it hits our forehead and you know there's oil on your forehead and you get up and run and then you find out that it did not trickle all the way down to the heart or the feet. And so at some point you realize what you have you don't fully grasp. And so waiting on the Lord is not, oh God, please give, please give, come on Lord, give. No, waiting on the Lord is, Father, I'm just going to have this continuous conversation with you about this so that you can talk back to me so I can understand it and you can understand it. I mean, whenever I have any questions about COVID or um, the, SARS, uh, the virus and all this stuff, I usually, even though I'm meeting them for completely different reasons, I'll ask Manoj and Prashant questions. And they explain it in simple terms. And I actually make notes. Why? Because if I wait on asking them to understand it, I'll get an actual picture of what is happening. You can ask them. Last time I met Prashant at Denny's, I'm asking him to, and he's pulling out diagrams and showing me. Thank God I am an amazing undergraduate uh, of zoology before I decided to change track. But the point being this, 
that sometimes waiting is simply having a persistent conversation about the same topic with someone till it gets down to your head, your heart and your feet. If your head and heart and feet and hands are affected, you're ready. But most of us have conversations with God that affects the head, but we do not allow it to go further. Therefore, we lose out on it quickly. But I really believe prayer must become conversation. I'm beginning to find prayer that's not conversation tedious. As in, it has to have promises and the word has to be full of faith, has to be serious, have to be... What if it's a conversation? How do kids learn through conversations? Questions. Teaching was never like this. Teaching was always questions and answers. So, here's a scripture and then I'll ask the five that I mentioned to come up and pray. Acts 4.29, I think. And this is what they can pray down however they want to for us as a people. Hearing the report, they lifted their voices in a wonderful harmony in prayer. Strong God, what report? The report that people were out to get them, to persecute them. There were threats. Hearing the threats and the report, they lifted their voices in a wonderful harmony in prayer. Strong God, you made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Give your servants fearless confidence in preaching your message as you stretch out your hand to us in healings and miracles and wonders done in the name of the holy serv- of your holy servant Jesus. Ask God for zeal. Go back to Isaiah 59, 15 to 17. It appalled God that there was nobody. Appalled him. He expected to find someone. May he not be appalled that Acts 29 wasn't there. So if you can come up, grab a mic and start speaking. And then we'll see if we need to sing. Otherwise, we'll end with that. Yalla, yalla.